go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord. We'll kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. Welcome to Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and this is part two of our look at Dungeons & Dragons' best and most interesting settings. Fred Melanson is back with us this time to talk about Spelljammer, a D&D space opera hybrid that first came out uh, for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition in 1989. Fred, welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you. Now, let me first say that this is an episode that's been requested by Fire & Water patron Keith G. Baker. Uh, earlier this year, I asked Patreon followers to suggest some games they wanted to see on Let's Roll, and this was one of them, so... I mean, we we were always going to do it, but yep. I fast-tracked it. I feel like you kind of have to. <laughs> Spelljammer is that thing that you have to talk about. But you have a deep love for this setting. I do. I own like, the first few products to come out back in the day, and I did use some elements on occasion. But how did you become aware of it? I become aware of it through the video games. Okay. Because there's like a computer game for Spelljammer. It's horrible. What is it called? It's horrible. I don't remember the name. It's really bad. Pirates of Realm Space is the yes. title. Yes. Yes. It's very bad. <laughs> what is, is it like Pool of Radiance or did, did they try to do something like that? Or it did, feels did, like it was rushed. Like it was buggy as hell. And like it's kind of like Spelljammer itself where it's like a good idea. Very interesting but poorly executed. Okay. So you did not fall in love with it then, or? I really liked the concept. Okay. This is like in early 90s. I wasn't playing D&D yet. Uh, I only started playing D&D in the late 90s, like the end of second edition, beginning of third. But when I connected this clunky, weird space video game was actually D&D, I was like, oh my god. I need to read more about this, and I need to, like, play this for real. And that's when I really, like, fell into... I wouldn't say I fell into the setting. I, like, I fell in love with the setting. I just love the idea, the mechanics. I kind of cannibalize it and use it in 90% of my D&D games. I use some Spelljammer stuff. Okay, okay. Well, let's... Tell the folks what it is. Spelljammer, AD&D Adventures in Space is the subtitle. <laughs> they put out this first box set in November of 1989 for the first time allowing D&D players to sustain space opera campaigns and essentially fly from one game world to another or to completely new realms. Head designer Jeff Grubb detailed how this all worked in the absence of science fiction tropes. So Spelljammer introduced into the AD&D universe a comprehensive system of 
fantasy astrophysics, let's call it that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, including the Ptolemaic concept of crystal spheres. We'll get it. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this. We'll get into it in due time. The product line ran its course and was replaced with Planescape on TSR's publishing schedule with products uh, coming out through 1993. So it's only like a four-year, five-year, four-year window. Mm-hmm. You know, it had tie-ins, tie-in comics from DC, a small line of novels, that computer game you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and then Wizards of the Coast, when it bought out Dungeons & Dragons, Never really invested in the setting, though you might see a spell jamming ship in an adventure here and there across the various editions. They kept the idea of Spelljammer as like the multiverse, and I feel like without being stated, the entire Wizards of the Coast D world still takes place in this Spelljammer multiverse. Yeah, it, it's out there, but they yeah, they just never like they didn't publish a Spelljammer book necessarily. No, they didn't update the rules. They didn't. There's nothing about space per se. I did do a little census of Spelljammer appearances across the the later editions. We'll talk about that at the end. How does this work? How do they make space work in a fantasy setting? Well, there's this whole cosmological model: crystal spheres, wild space, phlogiston, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a way to connect. The various worlds, really, you know, without moving through other dimensions. Well, the and the, I like that. Well, I like. I think it's really interesting how they treat with like gravity and essentially they made space travel a magical kind of seafaring. Some of the ships just look like like boats, basically, and others can be a little more fanciful. And you know, the different races went to the stars. Well, I can't say to the stars because yeah. stars are not necessarily in this guy. Because when I said it's the Ptolemaic model, this is like what the ancients thought <laughs> outer space was. Plates on top of turtles and dragons and whatever. That's all possible. Uh, although the main planets, you know, the Forgotten Realms and... The Realm Space, Greyhawk, and all like all of that, yeah. Yeah, the planets are spheres, you know. <laughs> they're, yes. They're Earth-like. But you could have all of this other stuff. So, the in the model, we're in a sphere... The stars mm-hmm. are just lights on the inner surface of that sphere. And uh, and then you can imagine any kind of physical model, whether the star orbits the planet or the planet orbits a star yeah. or, or they're not planets. They're disks and they're... Or they're donuts or they're whatever. It's really the fantasy. It's kind of like Jules Verne space travel, like to the moon and back and that kind of stuff, I feel. Yeah, there is an element of steampunk... In this, in a way. Yeah. And then, you know, the, when I said the word wild space, wild space is just outer space. You know, inside yeah. a sphere, there is a nothingness that you fly through, although the ships are surrounded with air. And so a solar system is a crystal sphere, and it is filled with wild space, which is nothingness, an airless void. And then the phlogiston is that these spheres, if you can get past the wall of the sphere... Some of these stars are actually portals or something, you know. Yeah. And then you can fly on the other, in between the solar systems, in between, the spheres are basically floating, like they're bobbing like uh, corks. Yeah, in like a, a river of... Phlogiston. 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 I never knew how to pronounce that. Phlogiston. If you tell me it's phlogiston, I'm going to go with that. Soft G in front of an I. I'm phlogiston. Phlogiston is a real word. 
It's uh, really? it's in the 17th century or so, maybe 16th, 17th century, when the scientists started talking about superheated, what we call plasma. Okay. Yeah. What we call plasma, they called phlogiston, which is a Greek word that means burning up. Okay. So this is what the phlogiston is. It's a, a bright, colorful, flammable, gaseous medium that you can kind of sail through. You got to turn off the lanterns before getting there because it's ex- explosive. But the currents can bring you to crin space, to realm space, to mm-hmm. gray space, I guess it's called. Whatever crystal sphere you want to get into to continue your adventure in a different setting. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the ways to use it, right? It's the mm-hmm. uh, as a, a bridge between two worlds, and you're saying, oh, I really want to do some Dragonlance, but we're playing in the realm, so we can cross over and have maybe a, like a trip, an adventure that is the trip. You can have plenty of adventures in Wild Space, too. I feel like I feel like adding the crystal spheres of existing settings is just a way to populate this, you know, wild space. Well, so that you can understand that oh, okay, these races that we know and yeah. But I think that's a waste of the setting, really. I mean, it 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 works if if that's all you want to do with it. But if you're going to buy the products, which at the time were available, obviously, yeah, then you you want to use it as a setting and itself. It has its own history and the th- those three worlds that I mentioned, Forgotten Realms, it's not the only planet in that system. No. So you, there are other worlds, uh, and then some of them are like like a lake in space or just like a bubble of water. <laughs> so there's all sorts in there. You know, like the sun will have portals to the fire elemental plane. and So, so you can populate space. Creatures living underneath the surface of the moon and all that kind of stuff. It's really cool that you can go into an asteroid belt and the wild space is the most important part of the spelljammer setting but it's also used as a, a, a grand unifying theory of the D campaign settings yes although not all of them are connected through this um, no. as we'll find out as we talk about more settings in the future but uh but yeah and there's they also like brought out a, a box set for cluster space which is just like asteroids, and it's its own unique thing. And one of the things that we're going to talk about a bit later is that there is a geopol- geo, maybe not, but political, <laughs> astropolitical. Astropolitical, There's yeah. an astropolitical element to this because there are, just like if you're playing Star Trek, which would be, you know, like an understandable, uh, or Star Wars, understandable outer space settings. I feel like this is a lot more Star Wars than Star Trek, though. Well, it would be because Star Wars is more fantasy-based. Yeah. But Star Wars is, is is very bipolar. You know, it's got the good guys and the bad guys. And even so, there's just like one empire and then people rebelling against that empire. But you- Yeah, but like, I mean, this is still like second edition where like the bad races are bad and the good races are good. There's no shades of gray. So we still have that kind of duality where like, okay, if we're, if we're in space, the Scrow are bad guys, right? But also there's more of them. So, yeah. so that's why I kind of find it akin to Star Trek in the sense that there's more empires. There's, it's not just monolithic with rebellions. Or you could, in your mind, you could say, "Oh well, the elves are Vulcans." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could do that. But in any case, before I want to get into the astropolitical situation, I do want to talk about just like the the mechanics that you were talking about earlier. How do physics work for them to work in the sword and sorcery? <laughs> Well, it's it's pseudo physics, right? Magical physics. Gravity, yeah. Gravity is on a plane where, like, if you're on a ship, if you're on the deck, you're standing up and you're being pulled towards the deck. But if you just go over 
the edge. You're not attracted towards the center of the mass. You're just flipped over, and then gravity pulls you up towards the ship again. One of the things that they do, like, to make it that you can be on the deck of a ship, it doesn't have to be enclosed. (laughs) Yeah. Every object attracts an air bubble. Yeah, when you leave an atmosphere, you bring with you a part of that atmosphere. Right. And that varies on the size of the object. Like, a, a, a single person leaves with an air bubble that... I think it's 20 minutes of air that you can... 20 rounds or however... 20 uh, rounds. However long a round is. Yeah, and a ship can have like four months of air for the entire crew. Yeah, and then you can have plants to like... Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) Well, there's an actual... I think there's an actual like rule about like having plants on the deck and... uh, Because I know the elves have like a lot of plants and trees on their ships and that kind of stuff. I don't know, it's been a while since I've read the actual settings books, but I think I remember that being a thing where like you can have plants to filter out your soiled air. Well, it makes sense for some of the species here to be more uh, autonomous. Yeah. You don't want to coast into an atmosphere just to, you know, every so often you want to be... So the the bigger ships would be able mm-hmm. to, to do this kind of thing, probably. And temperature is not a problem. They say some spheres are hotter or cooler. It's fantasy outer space. If you're in outer space, you're not in absolute zero Kelvin yeah. temperatures. You're just, hey, whatever temperature the atmosphere you left, that's the atmosphere you have on your ship. Pretty much. Pretty much. It <laughs> kind of stays that way. And I guess you can make sense of it. I wouldn't do the math, but... <laughs> You could kind of make sense of it that if it's a crystal sphere, it's enclosed. Yeah. Entropy is not going to be the same as if you're sharing the void with your star is radiating and then it's hitting those walls and refracting back probably. Sure. (laughs) Uh, I can do that. Makes complete scientific sense. Yeah. So, so, but, but it does allow for the ships to look like anything, really. So you've got some of them look like galleons. Some of them look like... Yeah, like the more human ships are sailing ships and then... The dwarf ships are literally just asteroids that they've mined out or like big chunks of rocks and they're flying around in rocks. And then you've got a lot of animal shapes. You have butterflies and manta rays and uh, the nautilus for the mind flayers. Terrifying nautilus. And some some really creepy, weird organic shapes as well. There is one adventure where there's like a beholder Death Star. Oh, we'll we'll get to that because okay, because I've played that. <laughs> so we'll keep that to when we're talking about our you know experiences. So these spell jamming ships. I mean, they're called spell jamming ships, but there is a ship called the Spell Jammer, and this is like a giant city ship. Uh, looks like a manta ray. It's legendary. If you have seen it, it's kind of like the Flying Dutchman or something. And here, let me say, like, this is one of the mistakes <laughs> that uh, that this game made. Is that, like, wouldn't this have been better as, from the get-go, the home base? Yeah. The water deep, the sigil. The Greyhawk, the city Greyhawk, whatever. The free city of Greyhawk. Your Deep Space Nine. Well, at least have, because it's a city, you can just, like, have wound up there, grow up there, whatever your origin story, and then take off from there. Because the way the game really is like, like I think they were maybe very anxious about this. It's like, well, people aren't going to start a new setting. You know, maybe they did that thought. I don't know. But we want something that where whatever setting you're in, you can jump aboard and have these new adventures. 
And that's all very good and fine. And there are opportunities and, you know, there are other products that kind of create home bases, the, the Rock of Brawl. Yeah, the, the core product... I feel like the the core box set, the uh, the AD and D Adventures in Space, and and what was the other one? Legend of that was Legend of Spelljammer, right? That had the well, yeah, but in the original box, they're mm-hmm. just going, oh, there's this legendary ship no one sees, and the whole setting is called that. It's called Spelljammer, but the Spelljammer is something unattainable. Like I feel like that should have been from the beginning. Yeah, I get it. But the way the first box set is written, it's like, you're in the Forgotten Realms. You want to leave. Okay. But what if I want to start in space? It's written as this connection between the different realms, the different campaign settings. And then I feel like once they realized that that wasn't enough to have like a, a, an identity for a campaign setting they kind of started building around that. But it feels like that that was the the original pitch. Like, mm-hmm. hey, how about we have a way to connect Dragonlance and Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms? Like, if we could all have those in the same universe and visit them through space. And then they were like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. And, and that's all very well and fine if it's going to be just like an AD&D source book. Yeah, if it's going to be a source book, but that's fine. It's not. Like, it's got its own identity. It's got the big Spelljammer logo. It's which like somebody really worked hard on it because it's quite complex. <laughs> when you read through that book, it doesn't feel like it's got its own identity. It feels like a supplement book. And that's that's unfortunate. And I felt like it took a long time for them to clue in on the need for the home base. Even the adventures, like the first adventures they published were for levels six to eight. I don't think there's any adventure except for the, um, you know, like collection of adventure nuggets. For yeah. the most part, it's all fifth and up. Second tier. So you can't really like be the first level character in space. No, you can't. You can't start by swabbing the deck and then becoming the captain of a ship. No. Like, you have to start already as an adventurer, as a somewhat of a hero, and then go out in space. Because even the Spelljammer box, Legend of the Spelljammer, it's not designed as a pied-à-terre, you know? Like the Rock of Brawl, it's mentioned as a home base, a possible home base in the first box, and then there's a product that eventually comes out. There's Cluster Space, which is a sphere not derived from the other three settings, you know, like a, a whole new set. That should have been the setting. And then from there, you can go to Kryn or Realm Space or whatever, but it should have been its own setting from the beginning instead of being this, this corridor between settings, I feel. That, that's, the, that's the first mistake they made. It's not going to be the only one. I feel like that's why it was replaced with, with Planescape. Planescape seems a reaction to... Spelljammer in a lot of ways. Because it is also a setting from which you can get to other settings, but it's got, yeah. really, it's a central city. You could stay in that central city forever. Yeah, you could have a whole adventure, like a whole campaign, just in that Planescape setting. Without resorting to going to the other ones. Uh, and, yeah. and I'm sure I'll get to talk about that in a future episode with Jonathan Schaefer Hames, who, who signed up for it. So, <laughs> okay. You know, if it only lasts three or four, four or five years, this setting as a product engine, it, I think it's because of that. I think that was too elusive. From the, if if not, it's not there from the beginning, and then you're hoping people will continue to buy the products. 
uh, but then you, you yeah. only give them what they actually needed later. That's not a recipe for success. I read somewhere that Spelljammer was like an idea that was had by some of the writers of TSR when they were at a gaming convention and they were just talking at a bar and they like that's how Spelljammer came to be. It's like this idea of one night at a bar where a couple of of game designers are sitting together and they have this wild conversation and then that's where they go. Well, nothing wrong with it. I mean, the premise... There's nothing wrong with it. The premise, I think, is a cool one. And I feel like it didn't necessarily go much deeper than that. They wrote a bunch of rules and mechanics, but didn't fill this, pardon the pun, but void with anything. They have some new races and they have some... But a lot of it is just... Elves in space, orcs in space, goblins in space. Well, we'll get to that uh, because yeah. the one of the things, maybe it's another mistake and perhaps in my opinion it is, uh, but you tell me because you've played it more. The thing that allows a ship to move through space, the helm, the magical helm, which is for the most part, a special seat, I guess, where a spellcaster has to sit and power the ship. Basically, it's powered by... Spell slots. Yeah. Does that work, in your opinion? I mean... <sighs> well, let me ask it a different way. This gives a job to... I guess Spellcaster can be a priest as well. Except if you go into a crystal sphere where your deity doesn't have any presence... Oh, yeah. ...as a cleric, you can't cast spells. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's imagine this the mage. The already difficult-to-play mage... You've spent your bottom levels as a one-shot, two-shot, maybe three-shot magic item, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you're, uh... you're super weak, you're unarmored, and uh, it's already pretty great that you've gotten to level five. Now you're in Spelljammer. And you're stuck in a chair. Well, yeah, is that it? Is that like, does this, it feels like it could give a job to a low-level mage where the, the magic user would be not only get to sit there and and fly the power the ship but maybe maybe you're you know the ship is an extension of you and you can that player would get to control the ship in some way well that's what it is that's fine like for a low level yeah the spellcaster gets to play as the ship essentially can can you still i don't know cast fireballs no well that's it i mean like by the time you get to space according to this and now the magic user is useful as a spellcaster but no, you're going to be sitting down in a chair. This was a problem. Like, why not just, they've got magic sails? Yeah. You know, whatever. Like That, to me, is a problem. Not just for you're taking the caster out of the, the fight. But when the two ships aren't next to each other, the casters are the only ones playing. Your fighter Better have a boat. is just going <laughs> to sit there and stare daggers at the other ship. Because he can't do anything. But use the... Catapult, whatever. There are alternatives. You know, the game talks about gnomish engines, and you can have magic mm-hmm. item burning furnaces. You can and... shove magic items in the furnace, and, and but that's expensive. Well, it just feels like, okay, what does this setting need for you to go on adventures? Mm-hmm. And it's like saying there's a tax on your feet in the Forgotten Realms. It's like, yeah. like why, why would it be super complicated to... Boots cost extra. Yeah, why would it be super complicated for you to get a horse? Right? It wouldn't be. Yeah. Well, here, if the ship is necessary to the the whole game, it shouldn't come with extra costs and extra complications. And, oh, no, we don't have a spellcaster or he's out of commission. or Like, no, no. Like, do away with that stuff. 
because it's an impediment to just getting there. It's an interesting mechanic on a game developer's side, but as a player, it kind of sucks. Basically, the way I would play it if I were, well, I would change it. But if I were to play it as is with the rules, I would have a magic user NPC sitting there taking orders from the party. So that would have to be just like a a crew, an NPC crew. Because you can't have one of your players stuck in that contraption. Or I'd make the ship dependent on other things as well well i think it it shouldn't be dependent on anything really like that way you'd have everybody have a job on the ship instead of just the mage is sitting in this chair and he's steering and he's going forward and like okay yeah the mage is the engine but you still need someone at the rudder you still need someone at the sails or like that way you get everybody more involved and it's not just the mage is doing everything, and then once you collide with another ship, you have to board. I'm in a pirate game right now, and it's like, okay, you got to need to go somewhere. Like somebody needs to. There's a lot of seamanship roles to get the sails right, and so in space, you could just say solar winds. The end. You know, it's it's solar winds, and when you get into the phlogiston, you got to steer those rivers. The end. The end. Do you have a, like a favorite ship design? The Nautilus. I, I use the Nautilus more than anything else okay. because it's to me it's a terrifying presence. Like if you have a game wherever in whatever setting, and then boom, there's a Nautilus that just appears overhead, and you're like, oh shit, we gotta fight some pretty pretty beefy illithids right now. Because I'm I was trying to figure out what I'm gonna put on the gallery post. For this episode yeah like which which ships which ships uh yeah the nautilus for sure and uh if you're looking at the goody ones mm, i like all the fishy ones i think the fishy ones are good the squid ship is cool or the yeah the squid ship is really cool too we like them if there's like a sort of alienness to them i yeah. think it's it sells the setting better let's talk about those dnd races in space like like to me, what one of the good ideas i felt was that the really alien dnd races that we're used to seeing as villains, beholders, mind flayers. The aberrations, the the stuff of nightmares, you know? Those things are basically are from outer space. Wherever they're from, they're from outer space, and they're only here because they got psionics, and it's like, that's not normal in D&D. It always seems like you say an aberration. Then they adapted the elves, the dwarves, not really orcs, but goblins. No, not the orcs, but there's the scrow, which is orcs written backwards and is essentially an orc. So obviously the the main races have all found their way into space, you know, from one sphere or another. But I like the idea that relatively rare creatures on planets might actually have come from space, like like those guys, because of their looks or whatever. And, and I say mind flayers, which I, may be a racial slur in outer space because illithids... They're not even yeah. necessarily evil in this setting, th- those ones. Beholders, yes. But illithids <laughs> yeah. are sort of sold as a sort of merchants. So they may not necessarily be evil, but they are some major powers. And then yeah. the game did invent a lot of others. But the ones that people are going to recognize is like, okay, elves, they travel in armadas. They have this huge empire. They, they see all the elven settlements as colonies. They're very monolithic. The dwarves, like you said, they're hollowing out mountains basically in space. Yeah. And once they're done, I guess they get rid of it. You know, they abandon the, their shells, their empty shells. They fly it to a different asteroid that they mine out. And But you might find an old abandoned 
dwarf thing. So the one, the one they picture in the book is like, it's got a, a dwarven face on it. It looks like a mountain with a big dwarven face, which might be the entry way or something. And then the helm is an actual helmet on it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's lizard men who are freed slaves with an interesting biology in space. Their eggs hatch more intelligent lizards in proximity to the sun. So they, they're always trying to make their culture smarter. That's an interesting, but they've got, they, they've hijacked yeah. other people's ships, basically. The gnomes are gadget happy, as, as you would imagine. Their ships tend to blow up. <laughs> they try. And then the goblin races yeah. uh, were, th- this is interesting. And when I was saying astropolitical, the goblin races were recently destroyed by the elves. By the elves, So yeah. they're desperate dregs and pirates, basically, in this. So instead of having, like, an evil empire, you've got a good empire. Um, genocidal good empire. It's the Vulcans in Enterprise. Like we want to keep order in this part of space in these crystal spheres, and of course they have a war with the evil races, obviously. But they've won that, yeah. and now they've they've become sort of I don't know. It's like they could be dangerous police of of space in a way. They're very reminiscent of the Tolkien elves. Like in Lord of the Rings, not in The Hobbit. Yeah, exactly. They look down on other races. and Yeah. yeah. And because they are so monolithic, it's, it's like they're going to be everywhere. And they're mm-hmm. all going to be on the same, using the same game plan. Whereas like dwarves, each of those mountains has its king. You know, it's, it's just like the dwarves down on the planets. Yeah. So they're like each dwarven ship that you meet is going to have its own leader. It's going to have its own policy. It's going to have its own attitude. But... With the elves, that's the big empire that you... I don't know if your PCs are all, like, paladins or whatever, but normally, a party is kind of a bit of a rascal. Yeah, your party is more likely to be a bunch of Han Solos than they are to be a bunch of Spocks. And you can imagine Han Solo running from the Republic as much as the Empire, if you use use that, that terminology. So, yeah, I think the elves... Either allies or antagonists in this, because they do have this this idea of how things should be, and that might not necessarily align with what your your players want. And then you know they're they're gonna try to rectify that. Well, let's talk about our experiences with the game. Uh, you said you incorporated it. You've never run an actual Spelljammer campaign? Yeah, I've never run an actual Spelljammer campaign. I've used the mechanics of Spelljammer in order to have moments in my game that take place in this outer space. And it's a fun change of pace from the regular high fantasy. Something happens and you open a portal and boop, you just pop up in the middle of space. And I'm going to use the Spelljammer rules in that situation and like kind of it kind of like drops the curtain and the players get to see that okay so there's there's a lot more in this realm than than just what's on the surface of the planet there's a lot of stuff happening up here and then when that's done okay we're back into the regular game but then the players have this idea that there's something else up there and that you know, maybe there's more threats or allies. It, it's There's that yearning to go towards the stars or to go towards bigger things that I find really interesting. I never got to play Spelljammer per se either, but I'm tempted in every D&D game I play to eventually turn it into Spelljammer. This includes the game that we're in uh, that's on pause since the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I've used it the most... When I ran a campaign in Eberron, even though Eberron is technically not in Spelljammer because it was released long after 
so they they don't have any thing forever on in Spelljammer. But like I feel like it's got that steampunkish magic steampunk feel to it where that it's not so far fetched that there are ships, you know, flying ships flying out there in space as well. My players rarely go in space, but it's always a possibility and it's always there in the background and stuff that happen that happens in space does have an effect on what happens in the campaign and vice versa. So you're saying that the technology in Eberron is already it's easier to justify a trip to space. Yeah, well I mean they they've invented like in Eberron you can have like a a construct player race, right? The Warforge. They're essentially robots. They've harnessed the power of elementals to have trains and flying airships and like just regular ships powered by water elementals. So pushing that a bit further, going to space is not so ridiculous of an idea. You just take your airship and you go a bit higher. Right. Yeah. So I get it. But also it, it remains, like we said earlier, it, we're always stuck starting from somewhere else and moving to space. That's a failure of the game as it was designed. The reason I don't have a full-out Spelljammer game right now is because like the games that I'm playing are not in second edition and like the conversion for me would be a lot of work not a lot but like more than I'm I'm willing to put in a D&D game at the moment I'm definitely interested in starting a game like just in space and and using the spelljammer setting as is well I have a conversion for you I'll name it at the end and I'll put the oh, that, yeah. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So maybe it it does a part of the work for you, at least. For me, I alluded to it earlier, I used the adventure Wild Space. It's called Wild Space, super generic Mm. name. Uh, That was a problem with a lot of these products. It's like, we're going to have Crystal Spheres and we're going to have Wild Space. But they also named adventures that. Well, yeah, uh, uh, that should be a source (laughs) book about Wild Space. Anyway, yeah, they had a problem with branding, but it is... You you called it the uh, Beholder Death Star. I was I was calling it the Dyson Sphere. Yeah. I mean that's what it. I adapted that first adventure for a Dream Park scenario, and famously our friend put uh, was extremely frustrated by the it, like it starts with an anchor drop from the sky, and then you got to climb it. But he was so scared of climbing <laughs> it, he thought like that can't be what you have to do about this anchor climb the the chain. the The scenario was spinning into place for the first fifteen twenty minutes. Well, he was very frustrated. So this is a kind of a famous Dream Park story for us. <laughs> we spent too much time on the story trigger. But the adventure, you explore the Beholder equivalent of a Dyson Sphere, or it's an abandoned Death Star. It's, it's more than a Death Star because it's got all these little micro-environments. You uncover the mystery of why it's here and, and how you're going to stop it from hitting your planet or something. Uh, so it's it is built on the product. It's built as the largest dungeon ever created. You're basically flying your ship through it. You're not yeah. even leaving the ship. And inside that big sphere, there's like these little cubes, and each of these cubes is a whole planet onto itself. Anyway, like ultimately, if we ask the question, why this rather than Garden Variety D and D? Like, is it worth dropping an anchor from the sky? Like for me, it's how unusual. It is as a mashup. That's the, the initial attraction. What you do in Spelljammer, you could do just on a sailing ship, on a monster-infested ocean. You couldn't do the Death Star, see? Or you couldn't have one ship ram another ship perpendicular 
on the vertical axis and then start running on the deck of one ship and then jump and run vertically on the deck of the other. Like they're kind of messing with 3D space that way, which is pretty cool. What Spelljammer gives you is these impossible environments. These environments are not possible on a planet. And planets are normally a lot closer to Earth. You know, most settings will have these areas or these dungeons that are strange. Like on the overworld, it's regular high fantasy right. setting. It's going to be, you know, hills and roads and lakes and, and, and seas and mountains. and yeah. But it's going to be recognizable for the most part. Whereas in space, you could do anything, and even space itself is a strangeness. Uh, so you could g- really go wild with this. So I think that's, if you're going to be playing Spelljammer rather than, I mean, that's that's my question. <laughs> you have to embrace the weird. I think so. Another problem that we had with it, and we, we talked about this before the recording, is the art. You didn't like the art. Oh, I, I didn't say I didn't like okay. the art. The art is... So 80s. It's the kind of thing that I think you can take any piece of art from any book of Spelljammer and like spray paint it on the side of a panel van. <laughs> Heavy metal 80s. It's line art in the interiors, right? Like today, the indie products are so lavish and it's all painted. and uh, So mm. these early books wasn't quite like that. You know, like you rarely got color inside a, a source book. For me, this is not all the books, but the original few was art by Jim Halloway. He really set the aesthetic. I think he was a great artist for comedy role-playing games, like notably Mm -hmm. Paranoia, second edition was all him, or first and second. Yeah. So I thought he was great for that. Tales of the Floating Vagabond, like humor games. That style works well there. He passed away just a couple years ago, which is very sad, but I'm quite underwhelmed by this straighter work like this more serious work, because I associate his work with comedy games, I'm looking at this, I'm, th- I'm thinking, yeah. is this a, a parody? You know, is Spelljammer supposed to be a joke? In a way, I think it's it's got a lot of jokes, like the giant space hamster. You're right. And if you look at the Cluster Space box set, and it's not called Cluster, it's called the Astromundi Cluster, which is its own setting. It's full of really mm-hmm. ridiculous names and puns in the names. And it feels very jokey. And this is an artist also did other D&D work, but usually it was comedy. It was like the Book of Gadgets or whatever it's called, Wondrous Inventions, or I'm not sure. But it's full of jokes. It's full of silly mm. items that, like, that's obviously a toaster, but it's a magical toaster, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Putting him to be the lead artist on a whole setting kind of gives you an indication that this setting is goofy they're not taking it seriously maybe i don't think they did take it very seriously i guess not (laughs) well i I mean if they would have taken it more seriously i think we would have had more content Mm. like i i definitely think that tsr saw this as more of a supplement more of a, a rules thing and a way of getting in between worlds than an actual setting. But they wanted to start pumping out more material, so they made it this Spelljammer setting. I I don't know why they made it a setting, because it doesn't feel like one. I think it feels like one eventually, but by then, most people had checked out. So, okay, well, let's talk about products. 
that we can recommend. If you're into it and you have a source for today would be PDFs or you have like a secondhand yeah. shelf at the at your gaming store, you might be able to find some of these. So we got there's some box sets, there's some source books, some adventures. What what would you recommend? The core one, Spelljammers, Adventures in Space. It's got so many unique mechanics that if you want to play it, you need that. You don't need the rest. You know, if, if all you need is like that kind of that bridge. All the rest is making up worlds, making up ships, making up races. You don't need that. What you need is how does D&D work in space? And it, the, the box also gives you like a battle map of hexes in space if, and little standy ships with like silhouettes of each sort of ship. So if you want to stage ship action that way, you can. Um, there are various... Ship maps, star maps, maps of both the Rock of Brawl and the Spelljammer. If you get the box intact, uh, you get all of these extra bits as well. I would say there are adventures that are worthwhile. I mean, at least to give you... They have awful names. But like Wild Space, I think it's great at showing how weird the setting can be. And it is epic. <laughs> so it's unfortunate that a lot of games don't have adventures just because... You know, there was just one book or whatever, indie games. Yeah. Because an adventure tells you how this works and how you should be writing scenarios of your own. So I think, like Wild Space, I would recommend. It shows you what's possible with the tools given to you in this setting. Exactly. And if you want source books, I think you probably need or could need Realm Space, Gray Space, or Crid Space. To expand the world. Mm -hmm. I think the Astromundi Cluster box set would be great. Whatever setting you usually set your games in. You want that space. Whereas if you want to do like straight Spelljammer, no other world, you might want to start with the Astromundi Cluster box set, um, which came out you know, like the last year. So it's probably more rare. I bet it's rarer because like... Later products are probably... They didn't have any reprints or anything like that. Like, But that would work. If you want to create your own crystal sphere, check out... There's a book called Planetary Planetology. Would help you with that, I guess. What really is missing for me, I hinted at it earlier, is lower-level mini-adventures. Actually, lower-level starters. Lower-level possibilities. Yeah, but there are possibilities because there's a book called Skulls and Crossbows, and there's another one called Space Lairs that give you mini-adventures or adventure hooks. I find them kind of underwhelming. I think I want something a little bigger. If you, even if you do that, you need a high-level caster NPC to fly your ship. Maybe you're just on the deck of somebody else's ship, and like they're always implying that you need sufficient level to go to space. That's going to yeah. hamper your ability to start in spell. Although you can start at a higher level. It's just, that's less organic that way. So I, I did uh, want to talk about what they did with Spelljammer beyond AD&D 2nd Edition. There, there was a life to this setting. Pretty much in each of the subsequent iterations, there's something. So for a third edition, Dungeon Magazine number 92 has a Spelljammer adventure that converts some of the rules to D20. And yeah. there's a crashed Spelljammer ship in Lords of Madness. That's it for third. Fourth edition, the Manual of the Planes discusses spell jamming and provides an example of a ship. So for mm -hmm. whoever is still playing fourth edition. Uh, and then for fifth. If, if somebody is playing fourth edition or wants to start, I have books that I'd like to sell. <laughs> Hit me up. Uh, I, can, I can give you those books. And for fifth, 
there's a stranded illithid and its ship in Waterdeep, Dungeon of the Mad Maj. Yeah, there's a book coming out. By the time this airs, it will be coming out shortly on May 17th. Mordenkainen presents Monsters of the Multiverse. There is some races from Spelljammer in there. I think the GIF are making an appearance the three queen the the ants so like i don't know if there's going to be actual spelljammer stuff but there is some races from the spelljammer setting coming in so fingers crossed like i said there is a conversion available a uh, homebrew available as well so if you google spelljammer 5e you're going to get there's a couple of options actually so and it they, they've done okay. the layouts it looks like a proper pdf book etc and you get some con- your conversions and you get your just like explaining the setting in the fifth uh, edition lingo that might be useful to you yeah i always want to end each episode with our lessons what lessons have we learned either as a gm or as a player from this setting what i've learned from this setting is to embrace the weird just if something's weird go with it it's going to pay off somehow you know i feel like i feel like it also opens up so much more possibilities just cuz now you can go to space for me it's very similar i guess mine is go big or go home you can totally do let's visit kryn and play an adventure there or fight undead on a derelict ship you know like the basics but what the setting provides is that opportunity for the weirdness you're talking about that you couldn't do otherwise and I would extend that lesson to other games. Like, what is mm-hmm. a unique feature of the setting you're playing in right now? And why aren't you making the most of that unique feature? And at the same time, understand that you have to balance that against easing the players in, you know, at a pace that won't leave them lost in the dust. You should definitely angle towards what makes the setting unique, but you've got to introduce the elements a little slowly because if the setting is way too weird then the players are just not going to understand what, what's happening. You know, Once you find that balance, I think whatever setting you're playing in, why are you doing generic adventure? Why, why a certain setting if you're not going to use its special features? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my lesson, and I've tried to do that with every setting I've used. It's like, okay, what's interesting here? Because otherwise, I might as well have created my own world that has a hill and a village. Yeah, absolutely. Is it in wild space where there are like space mines where it's just like skeletons huddled up and when you hit them with your ship they just climb on and start fighting i'm not sure it could be there's so much it's stuff like that that i love about spelljammer like okay you just have a a skeleton floating in space because they're undead they don't need to breathe they don't need anything and then when you come too close they just go oh I'm on your ship now. If you're th- listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I like space opera, I like D&D, or my players know D&D, but I want to do space opera, but they're not going to want to switch over to a science fiction game, this is a good way to, to do it anyway. I think it's a very cool system, and everybody should at least try it once. It's so weird. And it, you could easily take your cue from your favorite science fiction franchise and just file the numbers off, you know. If if you whatever it says, it doesn't matter. What if what if, if you love Star Trek? Well, why not just play these races as you know, just to recreate the Empire, sort of Klingon and Vulcan and exactly. whatever. Or uh, if you are a Star Wars fan, then play the Rebels because there's this huge Empire that you can create, and you can use yeah. psionics just like the Jedi's. And there are similarities there. Or maybe you love space. Wizards. Maybe you love Battlestar Galactica, and you just want to have your Spelljammer ship is lost. They're just looking for their crystal sphere, but they they all look like black spheres. 
<laughs> they're just like mm-hmm. riding the phlogiston <laughs> and then you know and maybe this yeah. this race is after them which would be the Cylons so you know space opera how do you adapt it to D&D you probably don't need any books but uh, this gives you no. a, a structure for a fantasy universe that you can then adapt to whatever you want and that's Spelljammer uh, I want to thank my guest Fred Melanson for sharing his passion for the setting Fred tell the folks where they can find you, your other projects? Nowhere. But there is potentially in the future a D&D stream on Twitch coming soon to a theater near you. They're waiting for you up there. And I'll stay here. And I'll be back after the break with Game Master Advice and your feedback on our previous episode. Thanks again. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission. To explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give me that Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. Spelljammer was most definitely a genre mashup. So let's talk a little bit about that and how to, I don't want to say weaponize it, but make it part of your toolbox. Like multi-genre, that's not necessarily a mashup. So, for example, in games like Torg, the genres coexist on the same planet, while a time travel campaign will allow you to multi-genre consecutively. You do a Western one week, Sword and Sandals the next, Space Opera after that, maybe. What makes a game a mashup is that two or more genres' tropes are interwoven in the same setting. The most common of these is putting high fantasy, magic, maybe Tolkien races, into another genre. Shadowrun is a fantasy and cyberpunk game. Spelljammer, as we saw, is a fantasy and space opera, and so on. Horror is also another fairly easy one, uh, as the tropes work whether you're in a summer camp, or on a starliner, or a prehistoric cave. RPGs have done a good deal with cyberpunk, which merely requires body implants, some form of decking, hacking with your mind, and the proper style. GURPS Cthulhu Punk, Torg's Cyber Papacy, and again, Shadowrun. 1920s gangland with spell-slinging hitmen? Been there. Cavemen with superpowers find lost world dinosaurs? Done that too. Steampunk mecha versus Moby Dick and the Kraken? Why not? It's really all about each genre's tropes and making them shine through in whatever other genre you're playing. While there are dozens of options on the market for mashup settings, you might want to create your own. Maybe you don't want to invest in a new game or system. Maybe you can't find a specific combination. Okay, sure. It's not that hard. In most mashups, one genre will act as setting, a fantasy world, outer space, the Old West, and you will port over tropes from another genre. So those tropes might be, for fantasy, it means magic, Tolkien or D&D races, swordplay. For space opera, it means ships that fly from world to world, dogfights, high-tech, aliens, 
possibly psionics. Horror, you want monsters, Lovecraftian elder gods, slashers, spells and curses. For cyberpunk, you need implants, decking, faceless corporations, and a punk attitude. Supers, you want powers, costumes, codenames, over-the-top heroics. In steampunk, you've got steam tech, Victoriana, colonialism, espionage, okay, secret terrorist organizations, casinos, stunts, death puns, um, uh, westerns, gunfights, horse wrangling, wanted posters, saloons, horses, in cops and robbers, procedurals, heists, the partner retiring and getting killed, car chases, and so forth and so on. It's up to you to distill the essentials of any given genre, whether that's the Arabian Nights or Indiana Jones-style pulp. For flavor, you can also throw in some of these tropes. Anthropomorphic animals, mechs, pirates, kung fu, robots, a particular mythology, whether Norse, Greek, or First Nations, modern attitudes, etc. They can provide a new spin fairly easily. Anthropomorphic ninja turtles fighting supervillains, anyone? Now, one thing that absolutely needs to be addressed is tone. Some genres are pretty neutral when it comes to tone, while others are more dominant. Horror, for example, suggests a sense of dread, while you could easily imagine space opera as comedy, action, horror, thoughtful, etc. But it need not be true. It all depends on what you port from one genre to the other. If all you want are vampires and werewolves, you don't need to bring the gothic mood with them. You can have your happy action comedy about vamps trying to make good by becoming nocturnal superheroes, where every villain is a universal monster. I once ran a long series of one-shots, each in a different genre or genre mashup, but I would say that the tone was almost always pulp. Action, adventure, daring do. Torg is really a pulp game according to its rules and premise for adventure scenarios, for example. In other words, you can impose a tone on top of any given genre mashup, and it doesn't even have to come from either of the genres you're mixing. Horror, humor, punk, cinematic, gritty, four-color. Use whatever your group is comfortable with, or create a contrast on purpose. What if that Cthulhu Western game used a comedy filter, for example? Or uh, your steampunk sword and sorcery setting was really a gritty procedural? Now, at this point, you may start wondering how much work this is mechanics-wise. It could be a lot, and it could be very little. Obviously, it all gets a little easier with a universal system. GURPS 3rd Edition is great because there are so many source books, so you can grab that Celtic myth stuff and plug it into your World War II setting easily. Depending on the level of crunch you want, you could use anything from Fate to Savage Worlds to D20. Some games have lots of source books to help you. Others are so streamlined, you can create almost anything from the tools provided. If all else fails, port over rules patches along with the required tropes. Your favorite espionage game doesn't have psionics? Adapt a system from AD&D, or GURP Psionics, or Blood of Heroes. Whatever's closest in terms of character generation, maybe. Or, less ideally, whatever you have on hand. Above all, don't overthink it. And dare to tweak it between games. Tell your players you're experimenting, and address bugs as soon as you can, even if it creates discrepancies between sessions. Final advice. In a mashup, you're always threading the line between surprise and familiarity, so be careful with your ingredients. If the tropes are obscure and or buried too deep, the players won't even notice it's a mashup, which means you've missed the point. The joy of a genre mashup is recognizing you're at an intersection, then actively using, and this is true of GMs and players alike, as a story and action engine. The players need to find your world familiar so that they can then enjoy the surprises. And indeed, you do not need to start a game off as an overt mashup. Let them believe their Roman legionnaires are in a military campaign for a bit before springing an alien invasion on them. Why did Rome fall again? 
Obviously, in that type of game, players will not immediately enjoy the cool powers that might be ported over, whether that's cyberware or magic or whatever, but depending on the setting, they could get them later, after they've discovered the truth. So decide when you want to surprise them. As early as character generation, or a couple sessions into it. You ready to make that mash? Show your work in the comments. And now a few comments on our last episode. Uh, let's roll. Looked at Hong Kong Action Theater. My guest was Fern. Comment section sort of starts with Rob McCarthy's Shot Across the Bow. Says, Dear me, this game sounds like you had 10 players. And I could have had because you have you can have a rotating cast of characters in, in that case. I think it was only five in this case, uh, with three to five appearing on any given day. The most players I've ever had involved in one game with rotation, and that's not around the table at the same time, because attendance wasn't mandatory, just like this one, was actually Dream Park, which we talked about in an earlier episode, and that was 18. So I'm a community builder, what can I say? As for Rob's comment, it's probably because we switched between the quote-unquote actor uh, character name and the player name. So maybe that doubles up the number of people, you know, reference. Definitely not put had this to say, although it's probably definitely put. He says, a great episode. I hope Fern is invited more often. Hong Kong Action Theater had a really cool mechanic of having players bid for roll kits. I know you've used or suggested kits to your players for other games. What has been your experience with this? Do you feel like suggesting skills that work well together has improved everyone's game experience? I still use them for guest appearances, actually, uh, where it wouldn't make sense for the guest to do all that prep work. You know, maybe they don't have those books. What am I doing? A whole session with the person? creating their character and then they only get to use them once or something. So um, whether that's in Dungeons and Dragons and having guest players or uh, put as I think referring to when, when I was playing DC Adventures, which is the DC heroes inspired mutants and masterminds offshoot. And not too coincidentally, Fern and I talked about that on an episode of Hero Points on this very feed, in which case we had a lot of rotating players in and out and did exactly that. People would tell me what character they wanted to play in the DC universe, and I would write it up for them, you know, using the stats from the book. You were just handed something. But I always do it after discussing with the person what they'd like to play. So I'm essentially cutting out the, the min-max rulesy stuff that a newbie won't necessarily be able to wrap their heads around. Of course, if they know the system, they want to do it themselves, that option is completely available. But usually it's like, okay, what do you want to do? Let me put it into numbers so that you don't make your like rookie mistakes on it. And in any case, what's the harm when the character is supposed to be a one-off or maybe a recurring character that comes up now and again? The main advantage is getting to play more quickly. And people listening to this probably know how many games die right after character generation. You know, so what if we do away with that session and get into episode one right away? I think that's probably a better way to get people invested. Trey Hooks says, this sounds like a game I need to try. Uh, regarding your discussion on martial arts mechanics using cards, war style, my group once did something like this and it worked pretty well. Mm. Back in the D20 boom, we played Solid, the black exploitation from Super Genius. For gunplay, we used the normal combat rules, but when it was hand-to-hand, -hand, we used the lunch money card game from Atlas Games to have a quick beatdown. So that's interesting. I'll have to look that up. Brian Linton says, I love learning about these games that I've never heard of before. In this case, I enjoy the meta aspect of playing an actor who is playing a movie character. It's an interesting way to play the same character from session to session while still keeping it fresh. This episode also inspired me to start streaming some martial art movies. I started out with The Last Dragon, 1985, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 2000, but hope to move on to some classic films. 
At which point in the comments, I gave Brian a quick list of some some of the classic Shaw Brothers films that you can't miss. Just off the top of my head, looking forward to, to see his comments on those. All right, well, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. Let me also remind you that you can leave comments as well at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire and Water Facebook page on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcasts. So, until the next episode, let's roll. Let's roll.